Hello, sayinokanow.org listeners. I just wanted to take a quick second to let you know that we have launched a t-shirt campaign. All of our t-shirts are harm reduction inspired and are available on our website, so please go and check that out. Also, please take that thumb of yours right now and hit that subscribe button. It really, really matters as far as getting recognition goes. And if you have even 20 seconds of time, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're listening because that helps as well. A big thanks to CRISM, the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse, for providing funding for this podcast to take place. And as always, thanks to DJ Charlie Hustle for providing the intro and outro music. As always, the views, ideas, and everything discussed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CRISM or any of their members. And the same goes for me and all of our guests. So thanks a lot for checking this out. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I am absolutely excited, uh, without without belief here, to have my next guest, Bruce Alexander. Uh, Dr. Bruce Alexander, uh, psychologist and retired professor from Simon Fraser University. If you've done any reading, any Googling on the opiate crisis, there's no doubt at somewhere along the lines, Dr. Bruce Alexander's research has probably been quoted. Uh, most recently, uh, Joanne Hari in his book, Chasing the Scream, uh, really highlighted a lot of what Bruce Alexander did over the years. And so I'm very excited to have you on the show, Dr. Bruce Alexander. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Matt. It's, it's my pleasure and honor to be on your show. Great. So before we get into uh, kind of the Rat Park experiment and everything that went along there, can you just tell me a little bit about your career and uh, what led you into this field of addiction research? Yeah, well, I... I landed in Vancouver in 1970 in the midst of an opioid crisis. Only the opioid of the day, of course, was not uh, fentanyl or Oxycontin. It was heroin. Right. And it was every bit as big a crisis as the current one. Hmm. And in the meantime, there, between then and now, there have been, there've been several crises. There was the crack cocaine crisis, for example, and the methamphetamine crisis. Right. So I, I'm, I'm sort of charting out my life in, in, in using uh, drug crises as the, <laughs> the milestones in my life. And as um, soon as I got to Vancouver, I, I got assigned to teach a course I didn't know how to teach. I'm a, I'm a psychology professor. So I got assigned to teach a course in, in essentially in drug problems. I didn't know a thing about it. So I, so I volunteered I went downtown to the what is now called the downtown east side and started doing a lot of volunteer work and this and that. And, and, but the most important thing that happened was I met um, real live junkies, as they called themselves. Right. Now, we're not supposed to say junkies <laughs> these days, but that's what they called themselves. And these are very serious people. And I, I learned that, you know, pretty well. Um, what I had learned in graduate school and, and so forth, it was useless. I, I mean, I had to talk to these people to find stuff out right. that, of what was going on. And they would tell me this stuff and I'd go back and tell my classes and my classes would say, no, no, that can't be true <laughs> because, you know, and one of the things they would say is that can't be true because of the rats. And by that, they meant that there was these experiments in those days that were extremely headline material about rats in Skinner boxes that if you give them access to heroin or any other opiate drug, uh, they'll take all they 
you know, they'll, they'll take so much that, that, that it'll make them sick. They won't, they won't eat normally. Sometimes they die. Right. Um, and there's the proof. This, this stuff is just irresistible and you don't need any complex explanation. All you need to know is that this stuff is irresistible. Right. So I've spent my whole life really dealing with that concept that, that, that it's as simple as that and, and finding out that it, it isn't. Uh, so we did some rat research, which later on became quite well-known, and you've, you've mentioned it, the rat park research. Yeah. But I also did a, a bunch of anthropology research. I mean, here we are um, in, the, in the midst of a, of a huge native population yeah. who has had uh, a really unfortunate history of alcohol and drug addiction. But why did that happen? Right. Um, well, well, you know, we know a lot. There's a lot of historical and anthropological material that, that helps us to understand these things. And, the, and in the long run, the answer is, well, it isn't just that this stuff, whatever the current stuff is, is, is irresistible. There's much more to it than that. And if we don't understand it in a much broader way, we're at a loss. We wind up having a war on drugs. Right. Or we wind up, as, as we now are, um, you know, making it impossible for people who are in severe pain to get the drug that will relieve the severe pain. Right. Well, that's, to me, that's almost as unconscionable as a war on drugs. Yeah. I mean, come on, let's, let's, let's get real. And, and, and I think we've had a lot of trouble getting real on this topic. We have, yes. Yeah. So you, so you went, Oh, you opened the doors of the University Ivory Tower and walked down to the streets and actually connected with human beings out there. <laughs> Sadly, I, I was forced to. It wasn't <laughs> my choice, but I was forced to do that. And and once I did that, there, you know, there's no going back. You can't right. you can't unlearn once you've 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 actually talked to some serious people and and spent some lengthy pieces of time in their homes and and I'm you know walking down the street with them and all that. Well, then there's no going back. I agree with you 100%. That's, that's how my journey began as well, from, uh, from working in organized crime sections and, and handling informants um, at all different levels of the drug trade, but especially when I was handling informants that were individuals that were struggling with addictions themselves. Once you, once you learn kind of the commonalities in all these lives, and I've, you know, I've talked to hundreds if not thousands of individuals throughout my career that have battling with addictions. And it's, it's like, you see these common trends yeah. and it's like, yeah. well, I can't ignore this now. Like we need to change something here because this is ridiculous. Well, I have a feeling that you and I are kindred spirits on, on this issue. And, <laughs> and, and I'm, I would, I would also want to say, you know, I do a lot of traveling, a lot of public speaking. There's a lot of people who are thinking along the same lines now, and and we're going to change. You know, we're in the midst of a paradigm shift, and I think that that is super important. We have to have it, and and it is coming. So I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic. I mean, even even in the the culture, I would say of the of the modern day police officer, the young ones that are getting hired, I I see the way that they handle um, people on the street a lot differently than when I first started. You know, I absolutely cop for yeah. fourteen I see years. That. Yeah, big change. I see that too with the Vancouver police. I mean, it's it's a whole different story. That's right. So when you when you went down and hit the streets, what was it that these these junkies, as they were called back then or today, maybe we'd call them a person with a substance use disorder or whatever? T- tons of different <laughs> um, acronyms or or pseudonyms we can give yeah. them. But what uh, what was it that um, they were telling you, or what did you learn? We were 
Well, one of the first thing I learned, of course, is that they they were not these mythical creatures who cared about nothing but drugs and and you know were going to trick me out of my wallet and and um, you know stab me in the back if I if I looked away. I learned you know I learned I was talking with human beings. Wow, <laughs> I mean that, that number one is a huge fact. But number two, let's let's go to the word junkie. Which they used, you know. They said we're junkies, mm-hmm. and 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 I would say, well, uh, you know, um, so there's a whole bunch of junkies, and 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 they would say, well, no, those other guys aren't really junkies. They're just um, they're skin poppers, and and to them at that time, we're talking about the early 1970s. Yeah, to be a junkie meant that you could take the needle, you could stick it right in your vein, and you could you could take the whole hit. And um, then come back for more. In other words, they were they were not just drug users. They were not people who used drugs. They were junkies. With, they were part of a select fraternity of people who would take the strongest drug, the totally feared drug. It was just as feared then as it is now. Um, they would take it right in the vein, and they would hang out with other junkies, and they would be thieves or prostitutes or dealers or all the other terrible things they had to do to get the money for this. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they were a little bit proud of it. Oh, I see. Now it wasn't that they were totally proud of it. You know, they were, they were also embarrassed and hurt and they were, they were being beaten up when they got arrested and, and all kinds of stuff was happening to them. And, and, they, you know, they were willing to talk to me, uh, you know, a little pimply faced, shrink with a, you know, just out of, um, just out of, of graduate school, you know, they were willing to talk to me because they, they weren't entirely happy with what, with their lives. And they were, they were looking for ways that they might change it. But, but on the other hand, they weren't without a certain pride or a certain identity, a very right. strong identity of being somebody. And that's what, that's the main thing which I learned, which is that to be let's put it in the language of those days to be a junkie is to, is something it's an identity it's an identity yeah. and it's an identity and it's a lot more than no identity at all right. and these are people who are faced with the you know they look in the abyss of no identity of all maybe i'm nobody maybe i you know i dropped out of school in grade 9 and the girls don't like me and the guys don't like me either, except for the, the junkies. Um, maybe I'm nobody at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is a psychological reality that, that is, is terrifying. And it's just as terrifying now as it was 50 years ago when I started in this business. And one of the ways you can get out of it is to be a junkie. Now, there are other ways to get out of it, too. Like, you could join ISIS. Um, or you could, or you could become a, a neo-Nazi, or you could, you know, play video games until until you die. Um, there are lots of ways to get out of this crisis of identity, this crisis of nothingness, and and drug addiction is one of them. And that's really the essence of what I learned. And and my claim is this: that if if we don't know that about drug addiction, we really don't know much. Uh, you know, we can talk all we want about the neurochemistry and, and that's true. You know, there is neurochemistry and we can talk 
all we want about peer pressure and about uh, wicked drug companies and, and, and all this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all true, but, but there is this essence. There is this fact that, that people need something, and one of the ways they can get it, um, if it's they can't drugs. get it any other way, is drug addiction, yeah. Right, so, so that individual identity becomes essential when it comes to uh, talking about addiction and prevention, uh, in particular among our youth, I imagine, then. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's just, just a simple fact of psychology, I believe, that everybody has to be somebody in their own mind. Right. And that's a complicated process. And, and if you, can, you haven't got any other way to do it, you can be a junkie. Uh, or, as I say, you can be these other things which are not any more desirable, as far as I'm concerned, than being a junkie. Yeah. And that creates huge problems. We've got, we've got to deal with the fact that we've got a lot of people who are feeling pretty empty in terms of their psychological needs, in terms of being somebody and having a, re- a reason to get up in the morning and having a reason to associate with other people. We've got to deal with that. And, and I think now at last, that we are dealing with, with it much more than before anyway. Yeah. I often use that um, that example of, of identity um, through some of the work I've read, more or less is actually like parenting research, but by um, uh, Gordon Neufeld. I think he wrote co-wrote, co-wrote a couple of books with uh, Gaber Mate. But I, uh-huh. he, I've noticed, uh, I often use a quote of his that's, that when he talks about um, a youth's identity and in relation to their peers and says when in, when a youth is raised by their peers rather than their parents, what's lost is that individual identity and the identity of the individual then becomes that of the groups. And I find that, yeah. that that's the only thing that I've ever been able to, to understand um, the street gang issue that we have here in Saskatchewan where we have... We essentially have, we'll have, they're predominantly Indigenous-based um, street gangs, but we'll have two youth that grew up in the same home, and they're blood, blood, blood relatives of each other, spent Christmas together, uh, but then in high school, one joins one gang, the other joins the other, and then all of a sudden, one's stabbing the other, and we're getting a call. It's like, well, how, how does this make any sense when these two individuals grew up together? Like, surely the bloodlines are thicker than the gang lines, and oftentimes they're not. And I think it's for that exact reason they were raised by their peers instead of their parents. But yeah, yes. Yeah. But, but the question is, why were they raised by these gang peers? Because why didn't they find some other peer group that was much more wholesome, like a church group or a or a, or a political activist group or anything? Right. And 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 that's. That's where it gets complicated, but that's that's the problem that has to be solved. Yeah, exactly. So, when you were uh, in your first few years of of teaching this new topic of addiction, you hit the streets. You started listening to what these frontline people, and you're sharing it with students. What what was typically being taught in the university at that time in the '70s? Was it that kind of you know, disease of the drug type theories where, you know, the drug just has that powerful hook, like you were mentioning, was that kind of the predominant message through all um, university professions? Yeah. yeah. It was. Yes. The the disease theory of 1970, now we're, we're going back a half a century. Right. <clears throat> was just as well developed as the, 
the disease theory of today, but it was totally different. The disease theory of 1970 was that that the the, the disease hook was the withdrawal symptoms. Oh, I see. So that you you could get addicted to a drug which produces withdrawal symptoms like heroin, or like morphine, um, or like alcohol, which also produces very strong withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. But you could not get addicted to a drug which doesn't produce withdrawal symptoms, like cocaine or like marijuana. Those you couldn't get addicted to those drugs. Oh, I see. Um, so it was a, and and the the science was very well developed, and it was developed not only in terms of, um, let's say, psychological experiments on on the reality of withdrawal symptoms, which are real. There are withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. Um, but also, um, it it was based on the neurochemistry of the day, which which did not involve dopamine or serotonin, but involved endorphins. Oh, I see. So, so there was an alternate brain theory, and there was an alternate psychodynamic theory, if you will. But it was still a disease theory. I mean, the, the, if you go beyond the details, the ultimate issue is that there are drugs which are irresistible. Once you start taking them, you can't stop. And we've got to get rid of those drugs. Um, or we've got to develop some kind of a medical intervention that will that will undo the hook once once a person becomes hooked. So in a, way, in a sense, nothing has changed since 1970 because we have that same underlying idea, but we changed all the details because they, they aren't true. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> so you have to keep changing them as they get, as they get disproven, but, but you keep the underlying idea, and that's our tragedy. You know, we, we, we have, we're just getting around to facing up to the deeper reality, which is that people who use these drugs you know, to the degree that they hurt themselves, have a need, and 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 they can fulfill them with these drugs, and and we've got to do something about where that need comes from. Yeah, exactly. Kind of address the underlying issue, because otherwise they're just going to keep going back to it. So, yeah. so what did you do with Rat Park? How did that experiment get rolling? Well, I, I it got rolling one day when I walked into my class and I said what I, essentially what I just said to you just now. You know. Um, and and some some guy, some wise ass in the back row, raised his hand and said, "Wait a minute, haven't you heard about the rats?" And and he was telling me, you know, in a, in effect, and he was, you know, it was a, it was a joke, but I, but I I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was telling me he knew I had heard about the rats, but he was telling me about these rats in the Skinner box that would take the drug and thereby proving that the drug is irresistible. And I said, well, wait a minute, those rats are in solitary confinement. Of course, they're desperate for, for a, a drug that will relieve their distress. And he said, oh, that's bullshit. And um, so we built Red Park. So that's how it started. Which, which is essentially a place where rats who are not in solitary confinement can have access to um, very strong drugs. And we showed... And of course, we have a control group of rats who are in solitary confinement, and then we compare the amount of drug consumption in both groups using morphine. Um, and guess what? The, the the rats in the in the solitary confinement cells take a lot more under all kinds of different conditions. So we did that, 
and and we thought, well, now this is going to change the world because we're yeah. shown that the drug is not irresistible, but it didn't change the world at all. Yeah. It, now we're, to, we're we're going back fifty years now, and it, it just disappeared. No one paid any attention until maybe thirty, forty years later. Now, and now, you know, all of a sudden people are paying a lot of attention. The experiment went underwater and was submerged for. Uh, you know, decades. Yeah, and, and then it came back up. Strange, because because it well, yeah, strange, but because it it was a it's a truth that people are now getting ready to accept, whereas then it was simply unacceptable. The uh, the belief in the the irresistible theory, or I call it the devil drug theory, yeah, was so strong then that that nobody, almost nobody. I mean, there, there were of course exceptions but almost nobody could face the fact that it, it really isn't true right and it, well and it also would have gone against the kind of underlying political agenda of the time that you know some of these yeah. drug policies were, were originally created to do right suppress suppress the you know uh, african americans in the us or the indigenous populations possibly in canada you know a lot of the a lot of the suppression or underlying you know racist racist goals of these policies um well, you you would have totally debunked their ability to to do that. Yeah, and 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 you're right. But I I would want to add to what you just said that I would say in Canada in 1970, the original racist basis of of the war on drugs had pretty much disappeared. I mean, the original okay. racial basis was was anti Asian, anti Chinese. That's right. that's right. And that's. That's absolutely clear. As you know, you've read Emily Murphy or the, you know, the early stuff on on the drug war in, in Canada. Yeah, it was anti-Chinese. It That's was right. it was a way of of sending the deporting the Chinese and sending them back to uh, China where they belong. Um, and it was ugly. It was really really ugly. And that and it, and maintained that ugliness through the 1920s and through the 1930s. But but you know, guess what? Gradually we we wised up as a country. I mean, we right. Asian people and Caucasian people get along very well in China, in in Canada and and in China too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and and you can't say now the things that 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 Caucasian people said about Asian people in the 1920s and 30s. You would say those everyone's going to hate you because because right. they're ugly, stupid things to say. So so by 1970. The racial basis of the war on drugs, even though it was was there originally in Canada, it was for sure, for sure there, yeah. had pretty well disappeared. What was left was was a, a fear of you know what's happening to our children. Why are children getting involved in crime? Like like gangs was a big fear, and and crime and um, juvenile prostitution, right and robbery these these were the the trigger issues in in 1970 much more than the original racial basis okay so when you can you, can you talk a little bit more in detail about exactly what what the radic park experiment consisted of like what did you actually physically do to these to these rats and and what the outcomes were well we didn't do anything to them we we just gave them a big space which is about half the size of my garage floor um and and I, I knew from observation that my garage floor was a kind of a heaven for rats. <laughs> um, 
so we gave them that much space and, and, and they took care of the rest. I mean, we put males and females in there and they did what males and females do. And they, which is, they had a lot of parties and they, they ran around uh, exploring things and they, they had some fights and they established a dominance hierarchy and they made a lot of babies and they, and they, uh, Oh, we learned all kinds of interesting things about watching these rats. For example, do you know that rats babysit? Like the, no. the mom, mom's got a big litter of, of babies. Let's say she's got yeah. eight babies and she's got to go and, and, uh, you know, have some, have some food and water and, and, you know, have a little talk with the other, the other rats. Well, she leaves her babies in the nest of her, of another mom and the, and the other mom takes care of all 16 babies. Oh, wow. Well, for, so anyway, this is what this is what we didn't do anything to them. This is what they do to each other. Is they create a culture, and um, and and you know the word culture is maybe a little bit <laughs> strained in this situation right. because they're they are just yeah. rats. They're right. not people, but you know they have a social life, right? And they do they they do that, and then you know at, at any time they can just walk right over to the to the the black hole which we have built for them and go in and get all the all the dope they want but they don't they're too busy so they didn't so and i i read that I'm to, sorry 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 to interrupt you there i also read that um was there a version of of the experiment i don't know if you guys did it or if it was uh repeated after the fact where they took a rat that was already like they intentionally became dependent on a substance and put it into that environment and it was able to wean they were able to wean themselves off was that part of your yeah. work as well that's part of our work too that was our original experiment the rats are in there. They've they've had nothing to drink but water containing morphine for, I think it was fifty days. So they are good and 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 drug dependent. I mean they have they have withdrawal symptoms. They're they're you know as dependent as you could possibly be. And we put them in rat park, and at the same time we we put the control rats. Um. Sorry. They, <laughs> I, I mixed up the experiment. Oh, no problem. They, they, they get dependent on drugs in Rat Park in the first place. And then um, we give them a choice of water or morphine. Okay. And so they switch to the water. Oh. And then we do the same thing with rats in solitary confinement. We give them nothing to drink but opioids for 50 days, whatever it was. Yep. And then we give them a choice, and they keep drinking the morphine. Oh, interesting. You see? I see, So yeah. they do, So now I'm making it sound simpler than it is, right. because not, not all the rats wing themselves off, and, um, not, and, they, and they don't all do it right away. There's a lot of variability and this and that, but, but in terms of statistical difference, the difference is enormous. Interesting. The... the the recovery rate, let's say, for the rats in rat park is way, 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 way higher than the rats in solitary confinement. Hmm. And so then how do we relate that to humans? I mean, that to me looks a lot like our colonization system that occurred here in Canada. <laughs> well, we could. We have to be, of course, careful in relating it to humans because humans are not rats. And, right. And rats are way simpler, but but the theories we, it's a, we can yeah, I mean, the, the way it suggests to me is that 
like you, you, you take people who have an intact culture and you break the culture down and you put them in reserves. Now they're still together, but they're not together in the way they were before. Right. They, they, you know, their leaders are discredited. Their religion is discredited. They got to go to residential schools. Their families are destroyed, but you know, so they're not exactly in cages, but they are deprived of their culture. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then you give them a choice between drinking alcohol and drinking water, basically, because, you know, you can go to the Northern store or whatever and get what they want, Yeah, get what they want. And guess what? A lot of them choose the uh, alcoholism. Alcohol. Right. And on the other hand, you know, people, people who grow up in a intact culture as their ancestors did, the ancestors of these very same Aboriginal people, um, they could go to the Northern store too and, and get alcohol, but they didn't because they were, you know, cause they were, they were too busy. Yeah. You know, they were busy. I'm talking about BC natives now because yeah. I understand this in terms of the, you know, the BC, um, situation where, where I've had a chance to actually interview people at, right. at, at great length. Um, yeah, they, they, they had the, the opportunity to go to the Northern store and get the alcohol, but they didn't. Hmm. Um, but, well, they might've once in a while, you know, they might've gone out and, you know, when it was a party or something, but, yeah. but they didn't become alcoholic. So th- there is, I think the, the best historical parallel. Right. Um, but as I say, you know, we have to, when, as soon as we start talking about people, we got to we've got to recognize that um, people are way more complicated than rats. For example, a person can be isolated even though they're on a, in a reserve. Yeah. Or you can be isolated Uh, even though you're in a city, right? I mean, yeah. Or in a city. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or anywhere. Um, So, so in a, in a sense, what rat park does that, that rat experiment, it makes the isolation visible in forms of a cage but human cages are sometimes invisible. And, and this is why God gives us psychologists to <laughs> <laughs> try, try to talk to people and, and just see if they're in that kind of a cage or not. And often they are. Right. Like, like imagine, imagine a kid in Vancouver. This is what I was running into. It could be our Aboriginal kid or anything else. You know, but imagine a kid who, who really isn't... Um, brought up in such a way that they they can handle school very well and, and really maybe there's something wrong like like maybe they're they're ugly or maybe they're you know they got some kind of a, a thing which makes people not like them and 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 they're they're isolated now they're they're going to school right it's not like they're in a cage but but in a way they are in a cage there's some form of because, social social isolation is occurring of some kind Social isolation and also this identity thing. I mean, they right. have to say, well, who am I? Well, I'm not a member of the theater club. I'm not a member of the, you know, the church club. Mm-hmm. I'm not a member of this or that. And, I, and, and I'm not a member of the clique. And, and really, the teachers think I'm a, I'm a moron. Yeah. So who am I? Right. So, so do rats have identity? I doubt it. <laughs> I, never <laughs> saw, I never saw any sign of it. True. Um, but it doesn't matter, you right. know. Like we, at some point, we gotta we gotta 
talk about this in strictly human terms, and but when we do, the the rap images keep recurring, and it, it becomes a kind of a metaphor. Eh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we get we get um, we do a lot of presentations through Say No um, to community groups, um, and uh, also a lot of out of town. Uh, a lot of the uh, First Nations have have called us out for uh, presentations, and at, and at the end. Um, and, I, and I share a lot of this information that we're talking about now. And a lot of the times it's the first time that they've heard it or at least thought of it in that context. And then they always ask at the end, like what, the, at least the leaders of the of the groups that we're presenting to often ask, well, then what can we do to, you know, provide, you know, some safeguards um, as far as prevention goes? What, what would you suggest that we could do to help build those use identity, help... Uh, you know, help make sure that social isolation isn't existing. What are some things that, you know, community leaders can do? Well, um, and you know the answer to this is, is, as well as I do, that community leaders all over the world now, recognizing this reality, are, are making much greater efforts to, to build you know, opportunities into the community where, where people can be active in sports, even if they're not a superstar. That's right. And people can be active in theater groups, even if they're not, a, you know, a celebrity class actor. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot more effort to create community openness. This is happening everywhere, and it's a wonderful thing, and it's, and it's really helping. But there's a there's only so far we can go at the community level. And, and, you know, we haven't gone that far yet. There's more, much more to be done at the community level, but, but still there's a limitation. I mean, the, the larger problem of the larger psychological problem that leads to addiction, uh, can't fully be solved at the community level because like, you know, I got up this morning and the first thing my wife and I did was to look at the the headlines of the Trump news of the day, <laughs> oh boy. and 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 if you you know when you read the Trump news today, as, as most of us will, you realize we're living in a, a totally insane world. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and 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 living in an insane world is it makes it very difficult to have a place. Like it's, you know, who wants to have a place in the insane asylum? Right. And. And what if the kind of jobs which are available involve, let's say, destroying the environment? Mm-hmm. Or what if they involve, let's say, making weapons to, to kill people in Yemen and Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, and, and, and what if the economic system is a system which isn't welcoming to people unless they're superstars are intellectually and they can learn to program you know every possible language right so, um, so there's people that just don't want to participate in our current society yeah yeah so mm-hmm. a lot of the problems go beyond what can be done on a community level and and of course you know it's it's vitally important that we do everything we can on a community level and more and more people are doing that and and I'm totally in favor of that but my argument is <clears throat> we have to take it on on a on a larger social level and and um exactly how we do that is not clear i mean the first thing we do is 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 recognize 
that that we live in a culture which has gone toxic. Yeah. And I say that because I'm sitting, I've got a stack of, deck, of books on my desk here, right in front of my chair. And, and these are all books by people on the left wing or on the right wing of politics. But they have this in common. They all recognize that, that uh, on a psychological level, these are terrible times. As, you know, people are, are suffering for want of meaning or psychosocial integration or, or identity or all these things. The, these are real. It's, a, it's a, an age in which psychology um, is no longer a fringe discipline because, because psychological needs have become so important that, that you know, they lead to physical problems like overdose deaths. Yeah. And, and we gotta, we gotta talk about our, the reality and, and people are, you know, on the both left and right. Yeah. The problem is that the people on the left and the people on the right think they're idiots because they, they diagnose the problem differently or in fact in opposite ways. Right. And they, and, and they, they, they argue with each other and hate each other because who they've decided is the bad guy is not the same as the other guys have decided is the bad guy. So, so, you know, there's a lot of political work going on and, and, and that work is important. Those debates are important because really there is an underlying malaise Mm -hmm. and really it's, it's not a difference between left and right. Really it's a matter of finding the source of that malaise as, as well as we possibly can and then dealing with it systematically and that's what people are trying to do Um, I I guess I guess the problem is is I mean as those discussions are going on um, there's individuals dealing with massive crisis in their lives and people are dying and families are being um, completely uh, isolated from their communities and so while while these while we're kind of waiting um, I think that's where we've seen a mass grassroots movement of people are just like, you know, forget all the discussions, you know, we're opening up a safe injection site in my backyard. Absolutely. We're doing that. And so you Absolutely. start seeing these rogue grassroots movements, which is, which is great. I think that's great too. Mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. Of course, while the larger discussion is going on, the people are dying. Right. And, and that's why, uh, that's why I'm so, I mean, I'm honored to talk to a policeman because I think policemen have played a, a vitally important role in saying, okay, you know, never mind the big issues. Let's, let's, let's talk about this, the, you know, what we can do right now. And, and there, and, and we get a harm reduction movement, which never would have happened if policemen weren't willing to, to say, look, look, you know, we can't, can't arrest our way out of this problem. We've got to have harm reduction. We've got to have self-injection sites and um, you know all kinds of things. We've got to have provision of, of opioids for confirmed addicted people who, who are just not going to stop. Well, we've got to make sure they've got a clean supply. Yes. That's right. So so harm reduction is, is vital. And then we have not only policemen, but we have Wonderful citizen organizations like Mom Stop the Harm. Yes, yeah, they're um, great. Yeah, which you know, and they're and they're going around saying, "Look, you know, we gotta have we gotta have safe injection sites, and you know, we've gotta have some way for people to get clean 
drugs rather than taking the risk of going out and killing themselves with the, with fentanyl. That's right. Um, all that. So we've got to have that too. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what's, that's what's going on, right? People are working on various levels and we have only now we have only a few idiots, um, who are saying, well, you know, come on, if we just, go out and shoot people who are dealers or, yeah. you know, put people in jail for life. Yep. We're, we're going to solve this problem or build a wall along the Mexican border <laughs> or these, this kind of nutcases are saying this stuff. Well, you know, we can, we, we can ignore them. Right. Because so many people know that, that that's just that's not, not going to help. Yeah. There's no doubt that there's no doubt that the narrative is changing. Um, you know, sadly, I, I talked to uh, someone on the podcast recently and we are we're talking about um, um, decriminalization of drugs, for example, and I said, "Well, the, the irony is, is the the power is in is in the hands of the police right now because we're we've been awarded discretion. I mean, we don't arrest every single person that we come across committing an offense, yeah. uh, but being a para, paramilitary organization, there's not very many activists, let's say, within the police service that are necessarily willing to put their necks on the line and." you know, deal with a social stigma that's also um, associated with, you know, maybe not fulfilling a duty that the majority thinks you're supposed to. So, you you know, you stop a person. I, I stopped a person the other day who had, who had some methamphetamine in their pocket. And I could, I knew this person's history. I could see that this is a common occurrence. Um, they weren't causing any problems. I was dealing with them for a completely different reason. And it, there's absolutely nothing to gain both in this individual's life or the community at whole for me charging him with this meth in his pocket, you know, so I, you know, thank goodness we have discretion. And I was able to say, you know what, you know, carry on kind of thing. I'll take it from you. I'll seize it, which hopefully one day I won't even have to do that, but, um, you know, I'll seize it from you and, and, you know, go on your way. You don't need another criminal charge for something like this, but the, but that movement still isn't large enough. I don't think. Well, congratulations to you and to all the policemen who are doing stuff like that. Um, and it, and that, that element of discretion, of course, is, is huge. It also incidentally applies to doctors. Right. Exactly. I mean, th- think of the, of the position of a doctor, you know, he comes in and this guy says, Oh, the terrible thing, give me the opioids. Well, that person may indeed be in terrible pain. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and to not give them the opioids is to is to produce needless agony. Uh, on the other hand, that person may be totally lying, and the doctor has no way to know unless he's a mind reader, which right. he or she is not likely to be a mind reader. The doctor is an impossible position. Mm-hmm. So I think doctors and policemen and psychologists are making those kinds of discretionary decisions every day, and they're making them much more wisely than they than they used to. Um, and, and, and that helps. I mean, but, but again, that's not the full answer. No. It's, it's just, I mean, I, you know, it's my bias is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a theoretician. I think we've got to, we've got to really understand the problem fully. And, and only then will we be able to move in the, in the political front in, in ways which are really adequate to, to do something about it. Um, but, but, and so that's the work I do, but everybody's working at their own levels and, right. and, 
you know, and in their own domains to try to do something about this. And that's, that's why I'm optimistic. Like I love to go around giving speeches because people get it in a way. Like I, I've been going around giving speeches for almost 50 years. Right. And when I started doing this, it was so, uh, discouraging because people would just hate it and they'd get up and stomp out and, and all this stuff. Well, they're not doing that anymore. Um, and, and it's because the, you know, the world is changing and, and we got to keep changing it. Yeah. Sadly, sadly though, it seems like we're not learning from some of our, uh, some of our core mistakes. An example, it's really interesting. I, I would love for, for, uh, somebody to do a sociological experiment on what occurred in Saskatchewan here because um, we had very little overdose deaths, opiate overdose deaths, like virtually none were reported a year. Um, Very, very few. And that's because our users predominantly used uh, morphine and dilaudid and there's absolutely like a such a small heroin market to the point where the police, like we could rarely ever seize it no matter how hard we tried, you know, in the community, they're like, no, there's no heroin here. And we would arrest high-level drug traffickers that would come in, and they would always try to bring an ounce of heroin to try to to try to get it out into the community. But nobody wanted it because there was always this this supply of of medical grade stuff floating around. That yeah, there's people scamming the doctors. Yeah, there's people doing break and enters into the homes and raiding medicine cabinets to get them. But there was no overdose associated to that. Fast forward till today. For some reason, there's been this war on doctors now saying that they're, con- they're one of the biggest contributors of the opiate crisis, which is not the case. And so now they've all tightened their prescriptions uh, up. It's hard to get dilaudid and, and morphine from your doctor now. And if you do get it, they give you such a small supply, you're having to constantly go and refill it if you, if you do need it. And so then what happened? Hello, organized crime. Now we have massive amounts of heroin in, in Saskatchewan that just came in in the last year, year to two years. And obviously that's all laced with fentanyl. And so people are dropping dead. Oh my God. Yeah. Like it's oh, so frustrating. I hate to hear that. I know. Yeah, and, and of course that's happening in other places too. And I mean, we're in the midst of this drug panic in, you know, I mean, a lot of people are dying and that totally matters and it's terrifying, but somehow the terror ties our hands it cripples us from from thinking wisely right and so we make we make that kind of mistake i you know and it's too early to talk about what i think is the is the real solution which is not to put the doctors in an impossible position as the gatekeepers for opioids do do you know i'm sure you do know um like Opioids used to be sold in a very safe preparation in grocery stores in Canada, and anybody could buy them. Did you know that? No, no, I wasn't quite aware of that. Well, I knew back in like, like far, far back. Nineteenth century. Yeah, yeah. Nineteenth yeah. century. And and guess what? When when we had that situation, there was an opioid problem, but it was way less than our current opioid problem. Way less. Yeah. And there was. Uh, Overdose death was almost unknown because you couldn't buy it in a in a form that you could overdose on. I mean, it was sold. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup was one <laughs> right. of the preparations, <laughs> and and it comes in a great big bottle. And that means if you want to, if you've got you know got a real bad pain, well, you got to drink a whole cup of the stuff. Right. Well, that's fine. But if you want to overdose, you'd have to drink a gallon, and you'd be barfing long before you. Uh, you know, before you killed yourself. Right. So you you couldn't overdose on it. And I and, bet it, and I, 
my prediction is it'll be after I die, but because uh, I'm old. But my prediction is we'll go back we'll to go that. We'll go back to that. Yeah. And 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 it's not an ideal solution, and it isn't that it was. You know, of course, it would have to be regulated, like yep. like like liquor sales are regulated and marijuana sales are going to be regulated. Cough syrup. It'll have to be regulated <laughs> yep. and all the rest of it. But that will be the ultimate solution. But it, we can't even talk about it now because. No. We're in the middle of a panic, and people are going to say, "Oh, oh, oh boil it down and, and and inject it." Right. And and yeah, some will. Yeah. But way less than are are doing it now. Yeah. Way and less. It, and I would be interested. That's, I'd be interested to know the impact of the crime rate would probably would probably dramatic dramatically reduce, because no one's having to commit probably. crimes to get it, right? Yeah. yeah. So so you know we do have we do have really radical solutions available to us, but we can't even talk about them now without seeming like an idiot right? because someone is going to say, well, all these people are dying and it's absolutely true. All these people are dying. Right. And, um, but it, and we do have to, to, you know, we do have to cry over that because it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. But, but the problem is it, it takes away our, our really our critical thinking capacity too. Right. Right. Well, uh, Dr. Bruce Alexander, thanks a lot for, uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. I, uh, out of our whole conversation here, there's one thing that I, that really stood out and, uh, I was always the smart ass in class at the parent teacher interviews. My mom <laughs> was always being told that your son's a smart ass and, and not, maybe not in so many words, but it's nice to hear yeah. that one smart ass in class contributed to some of the best uh, research addiction that we have today, or addiction research, well, I, I would say. <laughs> I would like to say something to, in that regard, I would like to say something to young people who may be listening, which is, yeah, be a smart ass. Be a smart ass. Good. That's the lesson of the day from, <laughs> from Dr. Bruce Alexander. Be a smart ass. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the Say No podcast. I have to say that when I first started doing this podcast, I never thought that I'd get to talk to the caliber of experts that I have. I hope you've learned as much as I have along the way. Uh, Please head over to our Facebook page. Let us know what you think of this episode. Also, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. It really, really matters. Please take the time to do that. And also, if you have an extra 25 bucks and you want to... Show your community that you are harm reduction minded and look good while doing it. Check out the t-shirts you have for sale at sayno.org. Take care. Catch you next time.